Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Headspace. Get a one-month free trial at headspace.com slash appleinsider. And Amazon Pharmacy. Save when not using insurance and get free two-day delivery at amazon.com slash appleinsiderrx. And Masterclass. Get 15% off an annual subscription at masterclass.com slash appleinsider. Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Robles, and joining me this week is my friend Wes Hilliard. How you doing, Wes? I'm doing okay, Stephen. Uh, just recovering from some fun uh, seasonal allergies. Mm, like real seasonal allergies, or is that like a code word? Uh, actual seasonal allergies. Uh, oh, okay. All the, all the fun things that podcasters enjoy, I'm sure. Yes, that's right. Well, anyway, before we jump into any topics, I wanted to point everyone to the latest HomeKit Insider. It came out earlier this week on Monday, but we actually interviewed Eve's brand manager, Tim Berth, and I actually pronounced his last name correctly, and so I just want to brag on that one more time because it had a umlaut over the O, but it was a fun interview. He talks about Thread and what that means for HomeKit and devices, so just encourage everyone, if you haven't checked it out, check out HomeKit Insider's last episode with that interview. It was pretty fun. Another beta of iOS 14.5 has been released, and there's some new features that were actually uncovered in this latest release. I'm always interested to know what new shortcut options are there, and we actually get a few in this release. In the Shortcuts app, you'll be able to use a screenshot step to be able to take a screenshot as a part of a shortcut. Rotation lock will also be available as something you can manipulate in shortcuts and also setting a default cellular network, whether you want it to default to 5G or 4G. And so that's a pretty interesting step, I thought. But screenshots, rotation lock, and default cellular networks, those will be new shortcut steps coming in the next 14.5. And then also there were changes to the music app. There's some swipe gestures that you'll be able to swipe on a song and add it to your up next list, either at the top of the up next list or the bottom and you can also share song lyrics i thought this was pretty interesting you can share like several verses of a song and it'll be in this like graphical presentation i think it's like a maybe in a video like it'll scroll through it and then a link to the apple music song and what everyone's really most excited about whenever there's a new update like this is new emoji And you're going to get 200 new emojis in the next iOS 14.5, including an emoji for AirPods Max, rather than just kind of the nondescript over-the-ear headphones, maybe looks like Beats. But then there's also these new faces. Have you seen these faces with, like, smoke around them? Yeah, one's, like, uh, blowing out a puff of smoke, and one's just surrounded by smoke. So I think Apple's... uh helping out some of the vapors with their emojis. Is that what that is? I was curious, especially the one that's surrounded by smoke. It, it almost looks like a beard, but then it's it's clearly not. It's, it is smoke surrounding the face. So I saw someone comment. It's like, I finally have something to post when I've eaten a really hot pepper or something. I don't know. Oh, okay. Sure. There's also a, a flaming heart. That's interesting. And some other emoji. There's 200 new ones. So we'll put a link in show notes. You can check out all the new emojis that are coming out there. Also, this is a security update for iPads. If you have a smart folio or a smart keyboard case and an iPad, there's now a feature where it will mute the microphone on the iPad automatically when you close the folio. I never even thought about this being a thing, but for security purposes, it'd be nice to know that the microphone will be forced to be muted when you close your iPad in the folio. And also, lastly, there was this a mention of a battery pack with MagSafe. This is a rumor, not really something that was explicitly in the newest betas, but the idea that there could be a MagSafe battery pack, possibly from Apple as a first-party device, I honestly love this idea. I've used battery packs 
attacks in the past with like lightning cables attached to it. You know, Mophie has their battery cases. I've used some of those in the past, but I love the idea of having a just wireless battery pack that I could just connect to the back of my phone that connects via MagSafe and then all of a sudden starts charging it. I really liked Apple's smart battery case. Um, I know the design was controversial or whatever, but I never minded it. The coolest part of it was the built-in camera shutter that only worked with the Apple's uh, built-in camera app, but it was definitely really cool. I don't know how a MagSafe one would work. Obviously, I guess we wouldn't have a shutter anymore. It's just going to be a dumb battery pack, but right. we've seen some knockoffs already on Amazon that set, that claims to use MagSafe, but it's actually 7-watt charging over wireless. Apple's will actually be MagSafe. I don't know how hot that's going to get. It'll be it'll definitely be interesting to try out, though. Yeah, it'd be nice to be able to charge the battery pack via MagSafe also. I have that Belkin 3-in-1. It'd be nice to like throw the battery pack on there when my phone's not there, and then it's charged and ready to go, so no cable needed at all. I wanted to mention that uh, John Prosser, the well-known Apple leaker, mentioned that the AirTags and new iPads are still on track for a March release. And I know at the end of last year, it was kind of up in the air. Are we going to get the iPad in March? Are we going to have to wait till the fall? And I just want to say I'm going to be buying the new iPad Pro super hard the moment that that is available. My 11-inch 2018 iPad Pro, that battery is still degrading, and I just I'm ready. My body is ready for a new iPad Pro, so I'll be jumping on that. Are you going to jump on that even though you got the, the 2020 version? Oh, I'll, I'll definitely get a new iPad uh, as soon as it launches. I still think it's a fall thing. It doesn't doesn't seem like a spring thing to me, but uh, we'll see. I don't know why you got to be cursing at me like that, Wes. I don't appreciate it. I am believing for March. <laughs> I want a March release. It just it just seems too soon. I mean, it, it, a 5G iPad with mini LED and all this stuff, it, it just feels like a fall release and this would be one year from the last release even though it was a small release last year apple still does the 18 month cycle with these ipad pros so i don't know i i don't see it happening this soon and i mean prosser is the only one leaning heavily into the spring i know german i th- think has mentioned it before but uh, very little tells otherwise well we shall see we'll see we'll know in a month So LastPass actually announced that they are limiting the options for free users. LastPass is a password management app, and it used to be free and you could sync it across devices. And now it's limiting its free tier to a single device. You can use it on your iPhone or on your Mac. But if you want to be able to sync your passwords and all that, you now have to pay for LastPass. I don't know what password manager you use, Wes, but I still use 1Password and I really like it. I think it's worth paying for these services. If you don't use a password manager app, even if it's just the iCloud built-in keychain, let me highly recommend that you do. But LastPass going paid makes sense. I've been paying for 1Password for a while and I think it's worth it. But do you use a password manager like that third party? I use uh, 1Password. I, I try switching back to Apple's um, keychain every now and then just because there are some promising features there and some of the autofill stuff works better when you're using keychain. Yeah. 1Password's been fine. I switched back to them recently. Been actually still migrating the passwords over because when you have like, I don't know, what I have now, like 200 passwords, it's it gets to be a pain to move them over one by one, especially since keychain doesn't have yeah. a good way to migrate. I've never used LastPass. I've I remember there being some sort of breach with them and uh, I just automatically discounted them in my brain as like, yeah, I'll never use those guys. If uh, if you're a password manager and there's a security breach, there's there's probably an issue. So That is true. I use 1Password also because of the two-factor like Google Authenticator option there. And it's not Google Authenticator. And most people just know the Google Authenticator app for those six-digit 30-second passcodes that change all the time. But 1Password has that feature built in. I think LastPass 
also has that. And that's one of the reasons why it's not enough just to use iCloud Keychain for me. There's none of those one-time password, six-digit things that you can do in iCloud Keychain. You would have to use another app. And 1Password, I just, the, the integration with those one-time passwords is great, especially on Mac or iPad. If you autofill from 1Password, it'll copy that six-digit code to your clipboard. You can just paste it and then you're off to the races in whatever website you need to go. I also use 1Password in a team setting. And I have to say that the features there are excellent as well. We have about 12 or 15 people sharing different vaults and you can share logins and you can limit the ability for people to edit the logins and you can even limit the ability if they for them to see the password. So if you want someone to be able to use the logins that one password has and they're on a team, but you don't want them to be able to reveal the password so they can actually see the letters and numbers that it is, you can actually limit that also. So someone can use one password to autofill things, but they cannot see the actual passwords that are saved in one password. So really cool features, especially for teams. Uh, I highly recommend one password if you have not used a password manager yet. Another piece of news that Apple won a patent for displays up to 200 40 hertz variable refresh rate. This is something that's kind of been a long time coming. We have ProMotion on the iPad where it has 120 hertz, but we've been waiting for the iPhone to go to that higher refresh rate screen. So they've seemingly won a patent for it. Unknown whether it will come to the iPhone 13 or whatever it will be called this year. But there's also some rumors that iPhone 13, if it's called that display, will have an always on clock and or battery icon. This is something that some Android phones have already where there's an always on display and you can see the clock and like your notification icons. The Pixel phones have had this for a while. Other Android phones have it. So I'd be curious to know if that comes. I don't know if an always on display on my iPhone is something I would care to have. I have an Apple Watch with an always on display and that's usually enough for me. But does that appeal to you at all, having an always-on iPhone display? I mean, some parts of it are interesting. Uh, I read a little bit on this. It seems there it's just conjecture at this point. Yeah. there. I mean, it's everything Apple Pro, I think, is the one reporting this. They didn't really reveal too much about where the information is coming from, of course, but uh, I could draw the same conclusion. If we get LTPO in iPhone, it's the same technology that enables always-on on, on the Apple Watch. Put two and two together. It would definitely be an interesting feature for certain notifications, maybe. I don't know. I, having to unlock the phone to see messages and stuff anyway, I don't see what use having certain information on the screen all the time is unless you just always want to see the weather or always want to see your battery percentage. But again, it, it doesn't seem all that important. Maybe certain widgets could be attached to the always on display. It's it's hard to say. Right. With OLED, it's just always scary to think of having a persistent anything on the screen. So I don't know. It'd be interesting to see if Apple even goes this route. I, I don't see it happening. It's, it's very Android specific, it feels like. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Pharmacy. I don't know if you ever heard of a company called Amazon, but I use them pretty often. Their Amazon Prime with two-day shipping helps me save money on lots of products, and now you can save money on your medications by using Amazon Pharmacy. Amazon Pharmacy delivers your medications directly to your door. No more waiting in line at the pharmacy or going through the drive-thru. It's super easy, and you can have your doctor's office send your next prescription straight to Amazon Pharmacy. You can use your insurance, as Amazon Pharmacy works with most insurance plans nationwide wide. And if you're an Amazon Prime member, you get free two-day delivery and you can save on prescription medications if you pay without insurance. I have found Amazon Pharmacy is super easy to use and I love how they just work with your doctor and you can get the prescriptions sent to Amazon Pharmacy automatically and then your medications just show up right at your door. 
Amazon Pharmacy, it's super convenient because you're probably familiar already with shopping on Amazon, and now you can just get your medications there too. It's one less errand, and it arrives safely at your doorstep. Amazon Prime members can save on prescription medication when not using insurance and get free two-day delivery. Learn more at Amazon.com slash AppleInsiderRx. That's Amazon.com slash AppleInsiderRx. Amazon.com slash AppleInsiderRx. Get your medications delivered directly to your door. Our thanks to Amazon Pharmacy for sponsoring this episode. Well, this is another rumor. It seems like Facebook might be developing a smartwatch with health and messaging features. And I just thought this was hilarious. All the news about Facebook and other advertisers trying to band together, fighting against Apple and all that. But the idea that Facebook would try to make a smartwatch. When I saw this, I was immediately reminded of the Facebook phone. Listeners, if you didn't know what this was, this was actually a phone made by HTC. I think it was called HTC first, but it was actually known as the Facebook phone where it was Facebook centric and it was a total flop, (laughs) a totally disaster phone and basically stopped being sold just a few months after it launched. But I thought this was hilarious and I can't imagine a Facebook watch actually being something that sells or that people would be interested in. Well, I'm not sure what the point is because, I mean, um, we already have plenty of smartwatch competitors and the market's shown that Apple Watch is the winner. I mean, entering a market with such a dominant platform as Apple Watch already, I mean, Facebook it, it can't use its name to enter the market and say, look, Facebook's coming out with a watch. How excited are you? It, no one's going to jump ship from Apple Watch to run to the Facebook thing. It, it's a very strange thing. It sounds like a big money sinkhole. Um, I, I, I do remember the HTC uh, Facebook phone. It was trying to integrate all of your feeds into one place. There were some interesting ideas there because, I mean, at the time it was a bit early for it, but it was the idea that your smartphone was everything social in one place, but Facebook was just getting a little too greedy with their data collection. And I mean, we were very innocent, privacy-minded people back then. There, No one was really thinking about it. So it was just more of a, eh, this is dumb than a privacy concern. Nobody really paid attention to that. But ultimately, yeah, I'm, I'm glad it didn't take off because, wow, that, that was a nightmare waiting to happen. <laughs> but the watch aspect here, uh, collecting health data, sleeping patterns, location at all times, Ugh. it'll know who's near you. Uh, if you're both wearing the Facebook watch, you know, like it's just even more pervasive basically spying on their users and no thank you so this actually just came out to the bridge keyboard max plus i think i got that right the bridge keyboard max plus it's 129 dollar keyboard and trackpad case for the 10.2 inch ipad so not the air and not the pro but the 10.2 inch the cheaper model ipad but it looks like a pretty sweet case and if you're in the market for one of these keyboard and trackpad cases you know you have the logitech version And obviously for the iPad Pro and iPad Air, you have the Magic Keyboard versions, which have been on sale recently, which it's actually a good time to pick up, especially the 11-inch smart keyboard from Apple. I think you can get it as low as $200 right now. But this Bridge keyboard with trackpad actually has a little pencil holder. Looks pretty sweet. And so if you're maybe trying to get one of these lower-end iPads for schoolwork or you have someone who's going to be using it as kind of their main device, especially for kids, a pretty sweet case. So I'll put a link in show notes to that. You can check out the uh, the Bridge Keyboard Max Max Plus. <laughs> Got to work on this naming here. <laughs> the Max Plus keyboard with trackpad case. Yeah, too too many S sounds uh, close together. But yeah, the 
interesting thing here. It, it reminds me a little bit of those tough books, but uh, I wouldn't try dropping this on you know concrete or anything. No, no, no. But yeah, tough books with a better trackpad kind of design. It's nice. I don't know if I. I mean, it, it's just. If I had a kid and I wanted a cheap iPad and cheap keyboard solution with a that totally encased the whole thing and protected it, this would probably be my go-to. I mean, for less than 500 bucks, you're operating better than most of the laptops you can buy at that price range. So not not bad. I, I like what Bridge is doing. And this is coming alongside the software update that makes everything work a little bit better with their trackpad keyboard combos uh, versus Apple's Magic Keyboard. Because if you remember, Bridge came out with their, what was it, Bridge Plus? Bridge Pro Plus keyboards uh, right when Apple was announcing their Magic Keyboard and it crushed them right right out the gates, especially since Apple immediately changed their entire cursor system, which Bridge was relying on specialized software to do um, the cursor and it, it yeah it was a train wreck sorry guys but yeah no this is this is definitely a step in the right direction and i could definitely see bridge uh at least pulling ahead with simple designs like this at a at a nice entry price yeah for sure well i want to point this out that the first apple silicon m1 malware was discovered in the wild this was a go search 22 app it has an m1 native version of this adware slash malware. And so, I mean, obviously, with any new platform, malware is going to quickly adapt to new platforms. So, uh, you know, a little discouraging that it's already uh, there for the M1 and it's possible to get this malware. I don't know. I've not had too many bad experiences with malware in my Macs, even with my Intel Macs. I mean, if you're not downloading shady stuff, you should be all right for the most part. But it does already exist for the M1, and surely more will come after this. But I'll put a link in the show notes to that article if you want to read about that M1 malware. Have you ever had issues like that with your Macs getting the adware slash malware stuff? No, I just see plenty of those uh, advertisements for, what is that, Mac Keeper that swears it's there to help you. Yeah, yeah it's definitely odd. Uh, no, no hardware, no software on the planet is immune from attacks. I saw an article titled M1 processor, Apple's M1 susceptible to attacks, not perfect after all. Just one of those silly titles. And just, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's going, basically they translated already existing code. I mean, it might as well be malware running on Rosetta at this point. It's the same kind of concepts. And I think all this does is show you ads. Um, and it's like a tracking malware. It's one of those really simple guys. Right. Someone probably spent 10 minutes and put it through a compiler and uh, here you go, M1 malware. And I believe it's already been like stopped and, uh, patched if I remember, if I read correctly. Yeah. It's just, it's funny to think, yeah, I mean, sure. We got one piece of malware and I mean, more will be coming, but the attack surface for Macs versus windows is still so small. I don't see too many bad actors saying, Oh, look at all these Mac guys out here. We're going to get so much money. It's just, (laughs) especially the M one side right now. It's just so small. There's not going to be a ton of motivation to, to target the M one just yet. So it looks like Apple is getting into 6G development with some new hires. This was actually your article, Wes. So tell me what this is about. So as with anything, forever marching forward in technology, um, Apple, I think a couple months ago, joined a 6G alliance and that now they've already put out job ads asking for engineers to come and develop the next stage in uh, wireless communications, 6G. Apparently, pundits don't think that 6G is going to be anywhere near ready until about 2030. So we're, we're a while yet away. But um, as with 4G and 5G, Apple was, you know, second, third to the plate. They didn't really come out the gate uh, running. And it appears as if Apple wants to be 
right on the release of 6G ready to go, especially since they'll be developing their own modems by that point. So um, it's just interesting watching this space. I mean, we're talking about a technology that's going to allow thousands of antennas in a square inch, right? It's mind-boggling where we're going to go and what even the applications is going to be for, because we don't even know what 5G is going to be useful for yet, other than um, what Apple said, what uh, playing MMOs in a baseball park. But yeah, right. <laughs> so we'll- Football stadium, yeah. We'll we'll see where six G takes us, but obviously, I think uh, we're we're getting closer to that augmented reality future Apple's talking about. So it'll be interesting to watch. Right now, you also put an article in here talking about that OWC unveiled a truly universal Thunderbolt 4 and USB-C cable. If you're in the USB-C world and you're using Thunderbolt devices, this is like the bane of anyone's existence trying to live in this world because knowing is a cable Thunderbolt, is it just USB-C, is it going to provide the right data transfer speeds? It's always difficult to know exactly if it's the right cable, but they unveiled this. It is a Thunderbolt 4 USB-C cable that they're saying is compatible with Thunderbolt 3 and four devices, so it's backwards compatible and USB-C and USB-4. This this is exciting and unexciting at the same time. It is just a cable, but also I mean, OWC's coming out the gate like, look at what we did here, but they're using a a Thunderbolt standard that's backwards compatible. Um, This is where things are going. Finally, when USB-C was first announced, um, it was, oh, it's a universal cable, one cable for everything, that was the promise, but then the USB standards for, you know, 3.1 one 3.2 by two uh that was the worst one just all these standards packed into the same shaped cable so you go to walmart see a wall full of USB-C cables and each one do different things at different power levels and different data speeds and it's just infuriating trying to think oh why do i need the 40 dollar cable look there's one right here for 12 bucks but that 12 dollar cable will send your data over at five gigs per second and that 40 dollar cable will do it at 10 gigs per second you know so it's just completely maddening and uh led to a lot of technical issues, especially, you know, IT field kind of thing. Why isn't this thing working the way it's supposed to? Well, now OWC seems to be one of the first out of the gate with Thunderbolt 4. Um, There's no Thunderbolt 4 platforms on Apple yet, but I'm I'm sure they will soon be here. Basically, it's fully backwards compatible with every single USB standard and every single Thunderbolt standard. So this one cable can just do everything. And it's only 28 bucks. So the only bad part is, is because it's doing it all, it is 0.8 meters, which is the smallest cable you can possibly think of. (laughs) Uh, You better not be thinking you better not use this anywhere other than maybe on a desktop where you'll be an inch away from the wall trying to charge something but definitely nice i mean it's going to be really hard to make longer cables with these specs too i mean if you're ever looked into cable specs and it's boring but the longer the cable the bigger it has to be (laughs) you can't really uh or else you're going to lose all that functionality so owc you you win you got you won the race there you go (laughs) one cable to rule them all that's what i like to see this episode is brought to you by headspace Wouldn't it be great if there was a simple and easy way to help you sleep better, focus more, or just act and be better? And there is. And if you have just 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. And that's not an exaggeration. I've actually been using Headspace for many years before they ever sponsored this episode. And I've found Headspace to genuinely help my focus and help me be more at ease throughout the day. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Headspace is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation... Headspace really can help you feel better. Are you overwhelmed? Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation just for you. 
Do you need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. One of the times that I used Headspace personally was when I flew more. I actually had a slight bit of anxiety whenever I would fly, and Headspace actually has a course just for fear of flying, and it helped me be more at ease and actually be able to enjoy the flight. Not only that, but I recently started doing Headspace with my kids. There's sessions specifically made for kids that can help them with focus or attention and can even help with anxiety. I've found it's especially helpful to do these sessions with my kids, and you can even choose different voices now for many of the sessions. You can choose between male or female voices, and it's just been a great experience for my family. Headspace is backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule, anytime and anywhere. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash appleinsider. That's headspace.com slash appleinsider for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered anywhere right now. Head to headspace.com slash appleinsider today. Our thanks to Headspace for sponsoring this episode. All right, well, I want to talk a little bit about Apple TV. And so I've been seeing some different things from people like Gruber and Jason Snell asking, you know, does Apple TV even need to be a hardware device that Apple still makes and sells? And then I got this notification. This is one of those random notifications that is a little frustrating to get because it's like you can't really turn them off as far as I know, but you get some like Apple Arcade notifications. Sometimes you get Apple TV notifications. And if you want to get a notification when there's a new episode of a show, you want those. But then Apple sends notifications like this. I'm going to read this notification verbatim so we can all uh, just enjoy it together. But it's watch Apple TV Plus on your TV, now on Apple TV, Roku, Fire TV, PlayStation, Xbox, Samsung, LG, Vizio, and Sony TVs. I mean, that just sounds like you know, watch TV on your TV now on TV, TV, and TV. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. Like, it's a ridiculous notification. One, I find it strange that Apple is kind of promoting all these other products like Roku, Fire TV, PlayStation, Xbox, Samsung. Like, that's a little weird that all those brands are in this notification with the Apple TV. But also, I know Apple's all big on privacy and stuff, but surely they know that I have two Apple TV 4Ks on my account that I regularly use and i wouldn't want to use the apple tv plus app on any of those other devices i actually don't have any of those other devices except for an lg tv my thing is i want to talk about this idea of does apple still need to make the apple tv hardware now i think it's clear that apple is pushing in the content space for apple tv plus you know they have a new season for all mankind coming they've had several feature films with that one with um Oh, what's his name? Justin Timberlake. He was in a feature film recently on Apple TV Plus. Palmer. And also there's animated content. There's a, a just came out that they're partnering with Skydance for some original animated content shows and or movies. They have that Billie Eilish documentary that they're really pushing hard. So it's clear that Apple is pushing for that Apple TV Plus content. And obviously they want to be on as many platforms as possible so people can watch this original content no matter what device they have, whether it's a Roku or a Fire TV. So I get all that. 
But to the question of do they still need to make the Apple TV hardware, I will say emphatically, yes, I hope they do continue to make it. Whether or not the Apple TV Plus app is available on all these different platforms or not, I actually still prefer to use the Apple TV hardware to watch content, whether it's renting a movie or using other streaming service apps on the Apple TV, I still prefer it. And Apple still uses it as a home hub. So if you don't have a home pod, but you want to set up HomeKit devices, the Apple TV acts, the Apple TV acts as a home hub. And also it still integrates tightly with devices like HomeKit secure video cameras where it could pop up on the Apple TV screen if you have a HomeKit secure video camera, or you can use home pods as the audio out. That's something that an LG, Fire TV, or Roku can't do. You can't send the audio to your home pods or use a home pod stereo pair for audio. That's something unique to the Apple TV hardware. So to this question again that I've seen around Twitter, you know, do they still even need to make it? I will say emphatically yes, I think they do, and I hope they continue to make it. I would still prefer to use even the Apple TV Plus on an Apple TV rather than one of these other devices. What do you think, Wes? Well, they definitely need to continue making this hardware. Several reasons why. I mean, sure most of these features can be found across other devices. And now you can have a home pod that does your home kit stuff. So a lot of the necessity of the Apple TV is disappearing, but it is still absolutely necessary for user benefits alone. If you've ever tried using like a Roku or fire TV, they are slow. The remotes just buttons. They don't, <laughs> you, you click around and it's fine. You can navigate a menu, but it, I feel like I'm being transported back about a decade and then opening an app and then using the interface is just clunky and terrible because they're going for lowest common denominator parts, uh, as cheap as possible, $50 for half of these things. And there's nothing wrong with that. I would love to see, by the way, an Apple TV stick for like a hundred bucks or whatever, just that just plays Apple TV content and maybe an app or two, but I don't know. The, there's definitely a reason for this to stick around just for the sake of usability. The app experience on these other things are just bad. And um, Apple has other things in the game now, other uh, skin in the game, like Apple Arcade is definitely developing to become much better. Now, the argument on what it should be in the future, that's totally up in the air. I mean, I wouldn't mind a more gaming-centric device. I don't think that's ever going to happen. Apple doesn't want to compete with Nintendo or Sony. Keep doing what they're doing, honestly. Come out with a box, throw in that new processor, and maybe come out with a proprietary controller. Not necessary now with the PlayStation stuff, but I don't know. Just give it a little bit of love. One thing I will say that I absolutely love about the Apple TV experience that nothing else can offer is the Apple TV app. I can, uh, other than Netflix, I can have every single thing show up in my up next and it automatically opens an app when I click on content that I want to watch. And it's pretty seamless other than the Siri remote being a little wonky using Siri's nice. I want to watch something specific or I want to search for something, just speak into the remote and go. And it's not Google search, which is what it's going to be on all these other platforms. So yeah, I agree. And I think Apple Arcade is a big one. I guess technically Apple could launch an Apple Arcade on these other platforms like Fire TV or Roku TV, but I don't see that happening because then you also have to get into, do these devices support controllers, you know, gaming controllers like the Nimbus or, you know, some of those other things. So I don't see that happening, but I do think a more powerful Apple TV to run some of those Apple Arcade games for sure. I do think that uh, obviously the Siri remote 
could use a little bit of updating. I use a Logitech Harmony Universal Remote for my main Apple TV, and then I actually use the Apple TV Remote Control on my phone for in my bedroom, which again, that is something that you would lose if you're you know using one of these other devices like a Roku or Fire TV, and I actually like doing that. It actually integrates with Siri shortcuts nicely, so I can wake my Apple TV and I can open the Apple TV Remote Controller on my phone automatically with one command to my HomePod, so that's nice. I would like to see with the audio settings, you know, you can use a stereo pair of HomePods now with an Apple TV, and it does the virtual Dolby Atmos and everything. I would almost be curious to see them expand that home theater ability. I don't know if Apple would make a sound bar or some kind of center channel speaker, but something where, you know, like Sonos, you can integrate multiple speakers and get a 5.1 surround with all Sonos devices. And I would like to see Apple, maybe, you know, you can do two pairs of HomePods, or maybe you could do a, a big HomePod pair for the front speakers and a HomePod mini pair for your rear speakers. I'd be curious to see them investigate or open up those things and to see if there's a uh, more home theater options there. But I also agree with you that they should offer a cheaper version like a stick or like a Google Chromecast style device that's in that 75 to $100 range because having the Apple TV 4K at what it is, like $180, I think it's a little much and probably prevents some people from using that as their single device. But like I said, I would still prefer to use the Apple TV hardware above any of these other platforms. And like using my LG smart TV is a the frustrating experience. Like I don't want to use those things. And like you said, things like Roku and Fire TV can be slow. They can be glitchy. And I don't get that with my Apple TV 4K or even the generation before that. Like they just work really well. So yeah, I hope they continue making it. The uh, biggest difference between Apple TV 4K and now, like when the 4K was released, is the existence of all these services. I mean, think back when the 4K was released. We, I don't even know if we had Apple Music at the time, did we? I guess we did. It was 2016. Yeah, I think we did. Yeah, so barely barely out the gate with services. And now we have, you know, Fitness Plus, which is a big deal. Apple's trying to push. Right. And Apple TV Plus arcade, all of these things, Apple could also use this as an excuse to subsidize the hardware a little bit and make it a little cheaper just because now TV Plus is a big deal. Come buy an Apple TV and get six months of TV Plus free or some sort of Apple One uh, bonus. You know, there's a million ways to do this that hasn't existed before. And I don't think Apple's been pushing the hardware because there is probably something on the horizon that they're going to release soon. It seems to much an Apple's, you know, wheelhouse to abandon. I mean, this isn't a router that some people might buy. It's an entertainment device. And I, I, I mean, it's probably not their best selling product, but I would say enough people buy it to justify it existing. Yeah, for sure. This episode is brought to you by Masterclass. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime and anywhere at your own pace. You can learn about filmmaking from Martin Scorsese, you can learn how to play chess from Gary Kasparov, and you can even learn business and leadership skills from Bob Iger, the previous CEO of Disney, and Howard Schultz, the previous CEO of Starbucks. I've taken several classes through Masterclass. Some of my favorites are still music composition with Hans Zimmer. He's written the scores for many movies you've probably seen. 
And one of my favorites is hostage negotiation from Chris Voss, which might not sound like you need it, but if you work with clients or you do freelance work, I highly recommend this course from Chris Voss. I love Masterclass because every session is beautifully filmed. There's incredible cinematography, and especially for courses where the visual aspect really helps you learn, Masterclass does it exceptionally well. I also love that Masterclass is available anywhere. You can get the app on your iPhone, your iPad, even your Apple TV, or you could just watch it on the web. Lessons are just about 10 to 15 minutes, so you can do a lesson on your lunch break. And one of my favorite features is you can flip it from video to audio mode if you just want to listen to it with the tap of a button. And in addition to video lessons, Masterclass provides you with downloadable lesson recaps and supplemental materials so you can keep learning even after you're done watching your class. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every Masterclass. And as an Apple Insider listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash appleinsider to learn more. That's masterclass.com slash appleinsider for 15% off Masterclass. Our thanks to Masterclass for sponsoring this episode. All right, well, I want to touch on some PDF tools. We actually had an article go up that talked about PDF Extra, which was an Android-only app, is now has come to iOS, and you can get that now on the App Store. It is a PDF scan, view, and editing application. I just wanted to touch on some other PDF tools that if you didn't know about, but you interact with PDFs a lot and you'd like to be able to mark them up or even scan and OCR them. Again, PDF Extra is now on iOS. I encourage you to check that out. I also use GoodNotes and Notability, sometimes for different purposes on iOS and especially iPad. If I need to mark up a PDF or you know fill out a form and then email it, I really like GoodNotes and Notability for that. Do you use one of those on your iPads? Okay, I'll, I'll come clean. I have no idea when i use pdfs um <laughs> okay i guess uh, the emails i get sometimes might be in pdf format which is some of the way like i'm on an <laughs> ipad so a lot of these things are kind of integrated and if i need to save something i'll save it to my files app if i need to mark it up there's a markup tool for most document forms so half the time i'm sure i'm probably interacting with some sort of pdf format but don't have any specific tools for that i've <laughs> explored options before like i've tried good notes and uh, notability um back when i was leaving the military there were a lot of forms and things to fill out. So there was a lot of me taking scans of documents and saving them. And that was handy. But since I've barely touched a PDF, I, I don't know. I'm just in the wrong business to be using them, I guess. <laughs> well, you're probably better off for it. I mean, it's not exactly fun. But for some reason, I have to use a lot of PDFs for different forms, filling it out. I also have kids and we do a lot of school stuff via PDFs. So I regularly am importing PDFs to the kids iPad so they can write on it and all that kind of stuff. So I'm big on the PDFs, you know, good notes, notability on iPad. But I also want to mention for Mac, Preview is a really powerful application, really. You know, it's the built-in PDF viewer and you can mark up, you can add your signature right there in Preview. You can combine PDFs and separate, separate out pages. It's not as intuitive as I would like in Preview. It can be a little complicated sometimes to combine PDFs. If you're trying to combine, I actually try just in Finder, selecting multiple PDFs. And I think if you right click or two finger tap, there is a combine option where you can just create a single PDF from the files you've selected. But if you're looking for a more powerful PDF application for your Mac, maybe you need OCR where you can pull the text out from a PDF, copy and paste it in some way. I do encourage you to check out PDF Pen Plus. It's by Smile Software who also makes things like Text Expander, uh, which I use pretty often on my Mac. But PDF Pen Plus, if 
they have a free trial if you want to try it. And if you're trying to select text out of PDFs, do that OCR thing. I encourage you to check out PDF Pen Plus if you need those kinds of features. Uh, Wes obviously never uses PDFs, but some listeners out there may. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Isn't it just a, a, a the most simple form of image? Um, on like, is, isn't that right? That's the kind of the point. It's just a very simple image format. It, it makes me think of fax machines, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I could see that. I send PDFs when I want the formatting that I've put in, whether it's texts and bolds and headlines and bullets. Like if I want that formatting to look exactly how it looks on my Mac to whoever's receiving it, I send a PDF. Because if you send a Word document or some kind of conversion of a pages document, that formatting is going to get all messed up, you know, especially if they're going to open it. Yeah, universal compatible format. There's the words I was looking for. Yeah. Yes, universal compatible. Yes. Because if you send a Word doc out of a pages document, forget about it. Whatever formatting you did, it's gone. It's going to look funny and weird. So I send PDFs if I want people to actually see what I created, especially if I put a little effort into making it look nice, maybe with a logo in the top left corner or, you know, formatting again. So I guess I send PDFs for that. I want my, my design work to be seen. Uh, so I want to mention this before we get into some listener questions and comments. The uh, Steve Jobs job application. <laughs> I saw this. I just thought it was hilarious. But this is going up for auction and it is a piece of paper that Steve Jobs filled out as a job application form. It previously sold for $175,000. And so it's going up for auction again. Who knows what it will sell for now. But of all the things in this job application that Steve Jobs filled out, I thought this one line was hilarious. The job application asks, do you have access to transportation? And Steve Jobs said, possible, but not probable. (laughs) That just sounded like so Steve Jobs, and I thought it was hilarious. So. Anyway, I'll put a link in show notes to that too. When I'm when I'm rich and the f- famous in the future, I'll make sure I'll put up my McDonald's application on the internet. <laughs> exactly. Maybe they'll auction off for literally hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, let's get into some listener questions. We actually had some listeners tweet and email us, and we really appreciate that. If you have questions or comments, tweet at myself, tweet at Wes. You can email us. All those links are in show notes. But Jeff actually asked, I think this was on Twitter. Asking about the transition to all M1 Macs by next year, what do you think the chances are that Apple will ditch Time Machine and use iCloud backup for the Mac as well, eliminating the need to use external hard drives for backups? And I think this would be a beautiful dream to be able to use iCloud Drive to backup your Mac, but I don't see this happening anytime soon. Number one, if you have a Mac with multiple terabyte hard drive and you actually use a lot of that space, uh, you can barely get that amount of iCloud drive space, even in a family plan. I think the most you can get right now is like four terabytes, but that's if you do like the Apple One Premier Services Bundle, plus you add the two terabytes additional. And if you think about it, that iCloud account, the Apple One Services Bundle and all that, it's backing up all the devices in your family, your iPhones, your iPads. And to add Macs to that you know, you could have multiple Macs in your family. I feel like even that is nowhere near the amount of space needed. And I also don't feel like Apple wants to do that just yet as far as an iCloud backup of a Mac. You know, other services that do this like Backblaze, they allow you to log into the Backblaze website and you could pull like an individual file from a backup. Or if you lost just a couple things, you can go and pull those individual files. I just don't see Apple doing something like that anytime soon. You know, even with your iOS backups, they're kind of locked as a single file. You know, you can't jump into one of those backup files and pull specific data unless you're using an app like iMazing or something. But even then, Apple doesn't make it easy to to find individual things in those backups. So I feel like we are a ways away from this, probably like five to 10 years at the earliest that there might be some kind of cloud backup for Macs. 
the problem with backing up a Mac, like you said, is that we're dealing with a lot of data and time machine and stuff like that is interesting because you're backing up a lot of information and creating all these little timestamps that you can revisit for certain documents. It's just a very complex problem to solve when we're talking about cloud based platforms and, uh, you know, terabytes of data. If you're one of these people who hoards all of your information ever and have five, six terabytes of storage used up, you're going to be paying a pretty penny to somebody to back that up, like Backblaze or someone. But I think there's a simpler solution. Um, And, you know, this is me just talking here, but uh, we're already halfway there with a lot of these applications and stuff. Um, A lot of files are in the cloud and um, licensing of applications and stuff is saved to accounts. So what exactly are we backing up anymore when we're talking about backing up a computer? Just the organization of the file system? Um, Can we take imprints of that and save that and have the file system adapt to a to that file archetype that we've saved and have it just reorganized that way rather than saving each individual file by itself you know uh, application databases and such like that being able to access this information rather than save each and every single little bit of a thing like that, that's what apfs was invented for right was uh right. trying to reduce the complexity of a file system by using duplicate files across many different applications so i mean apple's obviously trying to go that direction and trying to make the file system as reducing complexity while being able to access all the information at once, right? <laughs> but it, yeah, right. the o- overcoming the cloud problem here, it, it's just not, you know, it's a, it's a matter of time. We're, we're just gonna have to wait until Apple has a petabyte uh, storage plan that you can, that you can get. And uh, we're talking about 6G download <laughs> speeds and uploading your computer information. But until then, right. just backing up what's inf- important to the cloud might be enough. There's certain applications, certain things that do Time Machine-esque files uh, file versioning, like a IA writer, I think actually saves multiple versions of a file as you're writing in it and stuff like that. And uh, there's several applications across iOS that do this um, with cloud sync data. So there's ways to cheat the system and have similar time machine like features in the cloud, but it's just not all there yet. And I don't see Apple going that route. I mean, it would be smart of them to maybe, I don't know, become a server company and buy their own servers and run all of this themselves. But I think that would be the first step for Apple in order to do this. And they're not going to do that. Actually, talking about versioning and stuff, I think actually Pages, Keynote, and Numbers does versioning. And those documents save in the cloud by default. And for me, I've almost kicked a Dropbox totally off my Mac. I don't have it installed. I'll still go to the website every once in a while because I have some shit shared folders with people, but I'm using iCloud Drive only for my personal files, and I keep all my files in the documents folder on my Mac, which is backed up to iCloud, and if I have anything on my desktop, that'll get backed up too. So the only things not actually syncing to iCloud for me is like video renders, if I have those in the movies folder on my Mac, or any other kind of big files that I might have in the movies or music segment. With my music, I use iCloud Music Library, so that's backed up and synced to iCloud anyway. I really don't have anything locally on my Mac. So for me, I actually don't do time machine backups. I don't back up to a hard drive or anything because honestly, all my important documents are in iCloud already. And any big movie files that I would lose on my Mac, they're actually just exports from Final Cut libraries that I have on external hard drives anyway. Yeah, my Mac is basically on iCloud now. 
Yeah, I guess the question is, is what exactly are we backing up that isn't already in the cloud that, you know, because I mean, I mean, I'm not a Mac user, so I don't have full view of this. I, I have an understanding of what he's talking about, like what I, you know, what the uses of time machine and everything is for. But going forward, what exactly are we talking about here? Uh, all the applications can be redownloaded. Every Everything is in the cloud that's important, that the save documents, the photos, the, the files. So what's left here other than file structure and maybe project files? That are too big to be in the cloud, but then we're talking about cloud backups anyway. Obviously, the short term here is just back it all up locally and pray nothing happens. But yeah, it's just it doesn't seem like something that the average user needs. And Apple's very much an average user company, and uh, yeah, they're not gonna they're not gonna tackle that anytime soon. Well, Robert sent me an email. He was talking about ways to manage YouTube subscriptions, and he pointed me to G Potter, which is a app actually you can get on GitHub. I haven't tried it yet. But wanted to mention if people are looking for ways to manage their YouTube subscriptions and such, I'll put a link in show notes to that. You can check it out. If you try it out, listener, let me know what you think. And then Josh White actually tweeted at me talking about Apple Music versus Spotify and some of the benefits that he finds from Spotify. And he asked about playlist sharing and sharing a Spotify family plan with other family members and things like that. And I will say, number one, if you use Apple Music, you can share a playlist. You can actually just get a link for a playlist and someone can open open that in their Apple Music library and get all the songs, but you can't collaborate together on playlists. I don't think you can add songs to a playlist that someone else has created. That's something that Apple Music doesn't have, but Spotify, you can do that where multiple people can manage songs in a playlist. And then also talking about sharing an account with families. One of the annoying things about Apple Music is if you want to share an Apple Music subscription in the family plan, that person actually needs to be in your iCloud family, which if they are, you know, and it works out for you and you're sharing with your kids or some family members, that works out fine. But it is nice with Spotify family. If you're trying to share a family plan with other people who maybe don't have Apple devices or just you don't want to have to put them in your iCloud family, Spotify is good for that because you can just create an account, share it with the person's email address. They don't have to have iCloud or anything. And that kind of sharing is a little more cross-platform if you need something like that, for sure. There's obvious reasons for that, though. I mean, the money aspect alone. Uh, Apple wants control of this from the top to the bottom. And if you give the ability to hand out the family subscription to anyone, then you know you and five of your friends can just go get a family subscription. And you can do that with Spotify just fine. But Apple obviously doesn't want that to happen. And finally, I just want to point out this tweet. This is from JC Real Talk, I believe, on Twitter. But after William had mentioned his 5G speeds that he's now getting in his house, uh, intermittently, but he actually sent a screenshot of a speed test on 3, that's a carrier there in the UK, 3. He got over 900 megabits per second down on 5G in London. That's not millimeter wave. That's just like regular 5G, the uh, the non you know, ultra wideband stuff. And man, over 900 megabits per second down. And he almost got 90, he got 90 something megabits per second upload. That's pretty good speeds for a non millimeter wave 5G. So the UK, they're stepping up their 5G game, it looks like. Yeah, I was wondering about this because I know in China, 5G iPhones are insanely popular, but they don't have access to MM wave. But uh, China does have a very strong 5G infrastructure. So I'm guessing if they're seeing these kinds of speeds, they're just fine with regular 5G um, sub 6 gigahertz. The ratings for millimeter wave is what? 1.5 gigs to 2 gigs uh, per second. So it's 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 insane. But uh, I mean, 946, you're already doing better than my Wi-Fi speeds at home. So I think you'll be okay. 
<laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. I'd be curious, like, what the range is on that. You know, if you get that in London, is it... Four inches. <laughs> yeah. With millimeter wave, it's like, you know, 10 square feet. But yeah, curious about that. Well, anyway, listeners, I'd love to hear more questions or thoughts you have. You can tweet at myself. You can email me. All those links are in show notes. Don't forget, if you haven't yet, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. We'd greatly appreciate that. Don't forget to check out HomeKit Insider. comes out every Monday. And the Apple Insider Daily Podcast. That's every day you get the top Apple headlines in just a few minutes. Thanks for joining us this week. We'll catch you next time.